Hello and welcome to another edition of Biting Talk with Two Chicks, presented by me, William Sitwell, restaurant critic for The Telegraph. With Two Chicks egg whites, you can rustle up effortless fluffy soufflés, an egg-free omelette, a dreamy gin sour, and look, what's this? The co-owner of Two Chicks herself, Ala Uvarova, coming onto the show to chat not just about the glories of fluffy egg whites, but to champion the empowerment fund that she and co-founder Anna Ritchie have set up to help young women into the business. Well, not the egg white business, any business. More on that later. We'll also meet the brilliant chef Eduardo Pelicano, who runs Mouse in Shoreditch. He'll be explaining exactly how he manages to operate the kind of place so many in the business of hospitality dream of. Think of this, 16 covers and a no-choice menu. Also on this week's show, we'll be revealing the results of a new survey, the inaugural Pub Beer Price Index. Just imagine, you've booked a holiday of a lifetime, then realise you can't afford the beer. Will this survey save your holiday budgeting bacon? Don't go anywhere. Not at least until you know if you can afford it. Finally, we'll stop by the House of Heydari, where Biting Talk mixologist Farhad Heydari is saluting, correctly of course, an army and navy. But first, we head to Shoreditch and meet the man behind Mouse, Chef Eduardo Pelicano. Now, running a restaurant at the best of times, or even these times, which may not be the worst of times, is tricky enough. Um, but what if you've only got 16 covers? What if that is your USP? Well, there's a man who's joining me now on Biting Talk who knows all about it because he's valiantly, bravely, courageously continuing to serve just 16 people, one sitting every night. His name is Eduardo Pelicano, and uh, he joins me now. Hi there. Tell us about the restaurant. Tell us about how it is that you operate such small numbers, because it can't be an easy feat. Yeah, I mean, we, as you said, we have one seating day, five days a week, 16 guests. When we first opened the restaurant, we started off by having a communal table. And after after the latest, you know, the last, latest few lockdowns, we've had to change our change our format a little bit and we went from a communal table to to individual tables which i think has i don't know i actually think that it's made the experience even better i think it allows you to interact when you want and also be able to come back to your table and have your own uh, your own privacy we always like to start the meal off in the kitchen i think it's a i think it's a really I think it's a good way to set the tone to the rest of the meal nice way to meet the chefs and have a and have a chat i think that's a nice way to break the barrier between the chefs and the guests something that i think you don't find in many many other restaurants but i mean i'm assuming that originally the idea was quite a sort of supper club feel where you'd have 16 people at one table all getting to know each other yeah when you when you're splitting that up and i don't know if you even do tables for one maybe you know you're slightly curbing the original intent of bringing people together are you sort of sad that you're not doing that is it still working? Are you itching to put people on one long table? No, I actually, actually, we actually thought for a, a while before that we, we went into lockdown and, you know, we realized that the communal table wouldn't work. We were thinking already about changing that, that style of format. Yes, it started off as that, started off as that supper club kind of feel. And for me, I think we had, we had amazing, amazing experiences with that. People getting to know each other, people getting along. Um, but personally, I, you know, I kind of felt like, it started to, the party experience kind of distracted itself from the food. 
And um, whilst I'm, people are having too much fun, <laughs> yeah, exactly, people having too much fun and asking me if they can eat on the staircase instead of at the table was a uh, was definitely <laughs> was definitely a turning point. Um, so I, you know, I, I I don't I don't really miss it. I think this is I think like as I was saying before, I think you're getting the best of both worlds. So I think you're still close enough, and you can still you know when we do bring guests into the kitchen, there might be the table they're sitting next to might be in the kitchen as well. And there's opportunities to to engage. And when you go back into the dining room, and we have we've had that since we've since we've reopened, you know, tables talking to each other. But it just feels a lot more. I think it's a bit more natural. Yeah, and and tables tables for one, a table for one in the corner. Do you do that, or is it maximum two? Yeah, there's a table for one, um, which is actually yeah, it's actually quite quite popular. I imagine there's some you know some guests quite into that dining experience they want to try it try it by themselves which is really nice if i'm eating on my own i never really quite know where to look yeah. <laughs> do they bring a book do they stare at their phone all evening have they got a newspaper are they aching to chat to the waiter <laughs> a little bit of both actually actually the last two times we've had uh, we've had solo diners and they've spent most of the most of the evening in the kitchen with us which is really fun and um standing there with us we're serving them food they're not there's not even a seat that they'll just stand there and talk to us and watch us watch us cook and it's um yeah i think that's i think that in itself is quite a it's quite a unique experience mm. so listen let's drill down on the numbers here because i'm fascinated to see how this works mm-hmm. i think a lot of people's dream would be to open a restaurant with a limited number of covers because then you can really focus on the food they say that you can't really make money unless you've got 40 covers you're doing 16 covers you're doing 16 covers once a day let alone mm-hmm you know, doing turning tables and let's doing a lunch service, turning tables and doing two services at lunch, two in the evening, four services. You're doing one a day, 16 covers. You're in Shoreditch. I don't suppose the rents are minuscule there exactly. How on earth do you make it work? I want to know about these, uh, the mysterious economics of how this works. How do you bring the dream alive of this yeah. tiny little restaurant? I mean, we, we, only, we only have two front of house and four chefs. So even even with that, it's it's not a the the overheads for staff is is not is not incredibly high. Um, yeah, we charge one hundred and seventy pounds for the food, but luckily we are, you know, we're luckily we are in in Blue Mountain School, which is a building owned by owned by James Brown and his family, and uh, we get a good deal on the rent. <laughs> to be to be honest, otherwise, yeah, otherwise it would be extremely hard to make 16, 16, uh, 16 guests a night. Uh, work and I know that you do a you do a wine pairing yes and uh, what you also call a, a soft pairing yes um do you have to try and stop yourself from trying to push people to towards the wines that you're going to make a bigger margin or because you've already as you've already explained the economic stack up because you have a good arrangement with your landlord mm-hmm. that you you know you don't feel you need to do that no I don't feel like we need to do that I think that I think I think the wine pairing and the juice pairing was you know we actually when we first opened that wasn't it wasn't an offering that we um, uh, that we had um, and I think it was only something that we wanted to do if it really made complete sense to the menu and it could really heighten the experience. There's a lot of restaurants that you go to that they they have a wine pairing, but it's more trying to trying to like offload you know the the wines that they have in the back or a juice pairing is all these juices which are frozen and that's not something we wanted to do i i I really believe that our juice pairing is it's you know it's it's one of the most it's one of the most um unique unique ones in in london 
they're all live juices, they're all kombuchas, they're all ferments, which we prepare specially for guests who pre-book the uh, pre-book the juice pairing. So I don't think I don't think we no I don't think we have to steer people that way. If if people don't take the pairing, they usually go by the bottle. But I think I think having a wine pairing or a juice pairing when you're when you're taking a tasting menu is. I think it's a popular choice so so the guests can just leave everything in your hands and that's completely up to them as well. And and how are bookings at the moment before we talk about the food are you fully booked until the end of until the end of the year or can people still sneak in and, and grab one of those 16 seats? <laughs> um bookings have been great. Um bookings have been great since we've since we've reopened. That's um yeah, it's been it's um, very, very positive, and I hope that continues. I hope it's not just a just a spike after after lockdown. Um, we currently have our we currently have our bookings open until I think it's October. Um, you know, I think we do. There is a chance to sneak in because I think we are, as I think many restaurants are having a lot of late last minute cancellations due to you know due to COVID or which is which is another which is another topic in itself but um yeah. yeah there's always there's 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 usually spaces every week because people are dropping out and we usually just post it on our on our social media but no it's been it's been it's been amazing yeah it's been amazing to reopen and, and be fully booked for two to three months it's it's obviously it's every um every restaurant's dream every re- absolutely <laughs> and every restaurant critic's nightmare because uh, we can never get seats in any of these places as because we are of course just normal people now listen let's talk about your your influences let's talk about the food that you serve because you have uh, chinese singaporean roots when Mm -hmm. that comes to the culinary sphere what does that actually mean i mean it's it's it means a lot it means you know i mean i think i've been very fortunate when i was you know when i was growing up um to have one side of my family who are Chinese Singaporean and the other side of my family who are Italian, just being completely, um, completely immersed in, in, in amazing food and being so lucky to travel to Southeast Asia so frequently. Um, and that really has, it's, 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 it's made me want to bring those influences and those nostalgic memories I have from, from, from my childhood into, into our food. Um, not doing it in a, not doing it in a traditional, you know, we're never going to cook and it's not just Chinese, you know, we do a lot of, we do a lot of research into the ancient cooking in Korea, ancient cooking into Japan and obviously China. Um, but it was to incorporate these techniques and flavors into, into our menu. And, um, yeah, I'm very excited to be able to, to reopen the restaurant and have, and, and, and to be able to do that. And for those who haven't been or don't know, just tell us some of the highlights of, of the menu. I mean, I know you are quite a secretive place. Will you, will you, will you, will you reveal some of the, the things that you get if you uh, sign up for the 14 courses or whatever it is? <laughs> of course. I will, yeah. I mean, look, we were, we were, I think we were only very secretive at the start. I'm more than happy to, and if you look on my, if you look on my Instagram, it's got, probably every single dish on the menu there so i'm not i'm not <laughs> i'm not i'm not shy of telling people and i think that's important as well i mean one one of one of the, one of the dishes that we're doing at the moment which i'm extremely proud of because it's a little bit of uh it draws from both of my heritages of of chinese and italian is um it's like a, a noodle a noodle slash pasta dish and and we call it we call the dish marco polo as he was one of the first europeans to travel from 
Italy to China and he discovered, you know, noodles, went back to Italy and made pasta. So I wanted to, so we created a, a recipe which had a bit of a, a combination of a traditional pasta dough with, uh, with noodle, a noodle dough. And we fold uh, scallop rows through it, which is, which is a childhood memory for me. Eating scallop row noodles is a, is a big thing. Um, it's served in a broth, which is um, made with a kombu dashi. And there's a lot of, the idea with this broth was to kind of have, you know, when you have like a, a shabu shabu and you're, you're dipping all the vegetables and the meats and the fish inside and then right at the end, you have this broth, which just has all the flavor of all the proteins and the mushrooms. That was the idea to serve these noodles or pasta in a broth, which was, has this intense flavor of all these, um, you know, all these incredible dried scallops, dried enoki mushrooms, uh, shavings of foie gras going through. And it was also just to kind of, I don't know, for me, that's also what, that's how I see food. I think that's what food is all about. It's all about traveling, traveling to different places and trying new things and bringing them back and incorporating them into your food. And that's what this dish is, is really about. Yeah. Well, listen, we must end it there. Um, it's the most intriguing place, sleek, pure, clean, very clever design. Thank good you. Looking chairs. And, um, I think it's, uh, it's wonderful that, um, restaurants like yours with a punchy wine list can exist and thrive. Um, Eduardo, it's great having you on the on the show. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, I suppose if anyone wants to try and bag a last minute booking, they should just uh, follow your Instagram page. <laughs> yeah, that's a good shout. Eduardo Pelicano from Mouse. It's been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, William. Pleasure to be on the show. So imagine the scenario. You've booked that much-anticipated holiday, the most anticipated holiday of your life, given the plague that we've just been through. You get to your accommodation. You go down to the bar and you're faced with a beer price that you can't afford. Well, fortunately, Holodoo, the search engine of holidays for the ideal accommodation at the lowest price, have just released a study comparing the price of beer in 30 UK cities and 50 popular holidays destinations for Brits and to discuss this life-changing information, I'm glad to say that from Holodoo, it's Sarah Siddle joining me on Biting Talk. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Thank you very much for the intro. <laughs> and thanks for having me on here to talk about this. That's okay. We like to uh, stretch our net uh, widely around the world as we speak to guests. Uh, we've had a, a guest from uh, Massachusetts, I believe, earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, you are calling me. You're in Munich. Yep. Calling all the way from Munich in Germany. And uh, how is life in Munich this morning or today, whenever we're speaking? <laughs> yeah, it's the afternoon. It's lovely. It's sunny for a change. The weather's not been great. I think the same as in the UK. But yeah, it's all good. Cool. Now, listen, I'm sure you can tell me what the cost of a price of beer is in your local bar in Munich. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> Let's look at some of the uh, the results from this study. The cheapest places to buy a pint of beer in the UK are Inverness, £3.10, mm -hmm. Swansea, £3.50. The most expensive place to buy a pint of beer in the UK, no surprise, is London, £4.50, which is probably cheap for London. Yeah. Edinburgh, £4.40, Birmingham, £4.40. If you want cheap lager in Europe, you need to go to Prague, £1.50, and then further afield, Bali, £1.70. Tell us why you came up with the idea to do this survey, because actually it is something that really does, uh, you know, it, it hits people to the core when they realise actually they've gone somewhere wonderful, but they can't afford the beer. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, because we work with obviously holiday rentals, we know firsthand like how important price is for most people when choosing a holiday destination. 
And this led us to think that, yeah, the price of beer is also a pretty good indicator of how expensive a place is. Um, so that's why we decided to look into it, to analyze both at home, because obviously staycations are booming, but also in the most important global locations as well. So yeah, I think it gives us some really insightful information. Um, and it's, it's definitely good to know before you go somewhere. Can you judge a city by the price of its beer? I mean, if you want to have a, a smart holiday and uh, you're going to Prague, is the cheap lager indicative of a cheap holiday in terms of cheap as in not very nice? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, from a personal point of view, I've been to Prague and it's lovely. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I would say it does give you a good overview on maybe how much you would expect to pay for things like yeah, transport and accommodation. Um, of course, it needs to be taken with a pinch of salt sometimes. But I think when we look at the results, especially in the UK, like you said, with London being the most expensive, it's not surprising. And we do know that it is a more expensive holiday to go to London than, for example, going to Inverness, which is the cheapest. So um, I don't think that cheapest means uh, bad necessarily, not at all. Um, but I do think it's it's a good way to to judge the price of a place. Yeah, I mean, no surprises here that barley, well, barley is unusual, £1.70. Dubai, £10.40 for a yeah. pint of beer. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really come as a huge surprise. Sydney, I'm a bit surprised, £6.40. I would have thought the the Aussies, uh, you know, might have created a slightly uh, more value uh, drink, <laughs> especially for the, you know, the Australians, uh, you know, can be quite a thirsty bunch. Did Sydney coming in at £6.40 surprise you? Yeah, I think there were some, some surprises across the board, like some more expensive and some cheaper. Yeah, definitely I would have expected Australia to be a bit more expensive, um, more in line with Dubai, mm. which of course is, yeah, extortionate. Not my kind of uh, price for a pint anyway, that's for sure. And then other ones were also cheaper than I than I also expected. What are the main driving forces? I mean, is it generally, does this reflect the general economies of these, of these destinations? Are some of these prices being hiked in order to be able to drain tourists of their readies. Yeah, I would say so. I think yeah, different cities have different economic profiles. And yeah, there, there are many reasons for the differences between the UK and abroad as well, um, from how pricey a place is in general to the country's alcohol tax rates as well, um, which can then impact yeah the price a customer will pay for beer. And of course, if you're going to a capital city, usually it suggests that it's going to be more expensive. But of course, in the with Prague, we show that that is uh, not the case. So yeah, that's definitely the capital city to go to if you if you fancy it. And if beer really is the one drink that you need when you're on holiday, is there a can you offer any tips, any ideas as to how you might be able to find a decent cheap beer in an expensive city? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, where the UK is concerned, um, what we actually looked at in the study was both the top rated pubs in each city, but also um, for a cheaper side of things, we looked at Weatherspoons um, because, of course, we have so many Weatherspoons pubs in the UK. And you can even see, even in London, the difference between the price of a top rated one and a Weatherspoons pint in London is completely different. So... I think, yeah, it depends on what you're wanting to pay for. If you are wanting to go to a top rated place, then you need to kind of expect to pay more top rated prices. But if it's price that you're looking at, definitely maybe not looking for the, the proper tourist traps and uh, trying to go a bit more, a bit more local. And when you actually did all the work for this, 
I mean, this is quite a an extensive piece of uh, endeavor, I would imagine, if you did it properly, and I'm sure you have done. Did you have feet on the ground going into bars in all these cities? How on earth did you find out the average cost of a pint in, in Belfast uh, or in uh, Bournemouth or Folkestone or, uh, or indeed in Copenhagen in Denmark, where it's £5.40? Yeah, so basically how we did it is we... Well, we, as soon as we found the pubs that we wanted to look at, so for one on one side, it was the top rated ones in each city, which we found based on rating and review sites, for example, TripAdvisor, uh, Google Reviews. Um, and once we'd made up our list of where we wanted to contact, um, we basically did just that. If we couldn't find the menu online, um, which a lot of places do have their menu online anyway, so that made it a lot easier. Um, then we just reached out directly and contacted them on social media tried to get um, some information directly from them. And that's how we did it. But yeah, we had a, a good team working behind this so that we could get a, a good research across the board. Now, I can't have someone from a search and booking platform for rentals without asking them how business is going. Um, <laughs> some people have decided that this year it's just too stressful to even consider which countries one might be able to go to given the the amber and the, the green and the red Mm -hmm. um, uh, flag and labels or lights, whatever you call them, which seem to sort of change week in, week out. Um, are you finding this year a, a specific, a real struggle as different governments change their regulations week by week? Um, are you thinking, my God, I wish I, I wish I was in another business right now, maybe just in a, in a lager produce, maybe working in a brewery <laughs> would be easier than working for Holidoo. <laughs> no, actually, um, it's funny that you say that. So I think last year, 2020, was a lot tougher, um, mainly because this was obviously when everything was hitting for the first time. It was, you know, completely, we were not sure what was going to happen. So, of course, it was a bit touch and go. But from summer last year and still through to now, we have noticed that business is actually going really well, um, especially because of staycations. So yeah, of course, people don't want to leave the UK because it is far too confusing to even figure out where you can go. But that's made a lot of people look at home and yeah, they're doing their staycations, whether it's in Scotland or by the coast. I mean, we have some amazing towns around the whole of the UK, um, a lot of nice beaches. And yeah, we can really see that people are definitely, they're, they're still going on holiday, whether that's... Uh, just in the UK or not. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Well, listen, if anyone wants to know more about this, go to the holiday, sorry, holidoo.co.uk <laughs> website, the Beer Price Index, the first ever Beer Price Index 2021. The information is there online. And uh, it's been great chatting to Sarah Siddle of Holidoo. Thank you very much for joining us on Biting Talk. Perfect. Thank you very much for having me. Regular listeners to the latest series of Biting Talk will know that we now come to you proudly with two chicks, uh, effortless eggs, organic egg whites, non-organic egg whites. And uh, you'll know if you tune in each week that I do spell out exactly what you can do with this stuff. But I'm very, very happy and proud to say that one of the co-founders of Two Chicks is with me now on Biting Talk, and it's a warm welcome to the co-founder, Ala Uvarova. How are you, Ala? Very well, thank you, William. How are you? I'm okay. Now, first of all, I'd like to know where my guests are. I'm broadcasting from Somerset. Where are you, Ala? Um, right now, I'm in Massachusetts, just south of Boston. Okay, very nice. What on earth are you doing there? Are you, are you gathering eggs? Are you selling fluffy egg whites? Uh, no, just here visiting some friends and family. Um, but the U.S. is always good for um, 
inspiration and for business ideas. So yeah, gathering some thoughts. And the idea of, um, of of two chicks, the idea, and obviously this business has been, has been going for some some years now. And your co-founder Anna Ritchie was on uh, on on recently. Yeah, I suppose that the the U.S. market is was slightly ahead of us when it came to egg whites. If you if you say to egg, egg whites an egg white souffle, mm. if you said that on the streets of uh, Los Angeles mm. in a cafe off uh, Malibu, mm. it might have meant something. Whereas the British are a bit slower. They might go, hang on, what's wrong with the yolk? Exactly. And the US were literally miles ahead of us when it came to egg white. They were selling it in retail for 30 years before we started doing it uh, back in 2007. So yeah, they are ahead of the curve on that one for sure. And just tell us, remind us, what was it that got you into this business? I mean, it's 13, 14 years now since you've been putting egg whites in a carton. Yeah. Obviously, there was a gap in the market. Yeah. What got you into uh, fluffy egg whites in the first place? Well, actually, it was Anna's um, trip to LA. Anna spent some time in LA um, after she finished her master's. And, you know, she used egg white quite often. She bought it. She cooked with it. And she was very frustrated when she came back home to London and couldn't find it. And um, Anna and I were friends. We were just chatting. And um, she mentioned the idea to me because she studied um, English and journalism at university. And I had just finished my economics degree. So she said, you know, I've got this idea. But I don't really have, you know, kind of business acumen. Uh, so would you like to do it with me? And it was just perfect. It was perfect timing for me because I was just, you know, looking for work and finished uni. And I thought it was a great idea. And um, yeah, we literally got together, read the business plan. Um, and I did the writing. I did the, you know, the sales forecast, financial analysis, things like that. Yeah, we kind of went from there, really. Yeah. Now, two chicks founded, as I've said, by Allah and Anna, your Allah. You created this business, which was the fulfillment of many years of, of hard work. And as part of that, you've created the Two Chicks Empowerment Fund, which is what I want to talk about, supporting girls and young women, helping them to achieve their potential, develop their self-confidence, I suppose, in a similar way that uh, that you two have done over the years, so that you can coach people and the hurdles that you've had to go over, the problems you've had, I suppose, those things you can share with, with girls and young women. Tell me exactly how this works. Who are you helping and how do you do it? Yes, yeah, so we set up the fund um, towards the back end of 2020. It is something that we've wanted to do for quite a while. Um, so what we've done at the moment, we've just partnered with two schools um, and we're working very closely with them. Um, it's kind of like our pilot run, essentially, you know, and once... Um, and it's you know it's going really really well with the two schools. So of course we want to now roll it out and help many more. The idea, yes, the, the idea is literally just to empower girls because you know um, I've gone back to my old school several times. I went back to my university. I've gone to a couple of local primary schools, and it was just really nice to talk to you know girls and young women and to just tell them you know our story and. It did feel like they kind of they were inspired, especially the younger ones. Um, and it's great to be able to do that, just to you know, just to let them know that anything is possible. Um, that you know, with hard work and um, determination, you can start a business and you can, you know, break into the multiples and you know, sell your products internationally, um, things like that. So, um, so yeah, so the two schools we're working with at the moment, um, Parliament Hill and Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. We've chosen the schools which have got um you know, disproportionately high amount of 
pupils on um, free school meals, essentially. And, um, and both of the schools, they've had their own ideas on what it is they need, you know, help with more. Um, so, no, so it's been really good. Um, it's been really good in that respect. So I can tell you, for instance, um, you know, for Parliament Hill, we bought books for all the girls in year seven, eight, and nine. Uh, we've helped them set up a mobile library, as well as a feminist orchard. Um, they've had speakers in, which we've paid for. Um, for next year, they're going to be uh, broadening the curriculum to include, you know, more women, um, things like that. So we're, you know, we're planning the initiatives for next year. Um, Elizabeth Gary Anderson have done like a, a wonderful um, Resilient Me program where we um, we bought gratitude journals for all the students in year 11. And these gratitude journals came with lesson plans. Um, and it's been really helpful for, for the girls right now, especially you know, we've had this really long um, lockdown and so mental health was really suffering. So this has been really helpful. We also paid um, for this um, initiative called The Space, where we've created a space where the kids can go, uh, you know, when they need help, you know, when they're struggling, uh, kind of emotionally, mentally. Um, and we've already, we've already had feedback on these two schemes and, you know, it's it's been really helpful. And, you know, girls who were really struggling and, you know, kind of were on the edge of being expelled are now thriving. You know, obviously one of the things that you're doing is you're trying to develop the self-confidence of, of, of young women. Yes. And specifically... You're talking about young women, not young men. You are two women who work in business. What sort of situations have you found yourselves up against where you've found it difficult, uh, where you've struggled as a woman purely as opposed to being a businessman? Yeah, we've certainly had that, especially at the beginning, when we were looking to start to raise funding. We were told no so many times and I think part of it was because we were two young women and, you know, we didn't have any experience, um, even though they kind of thought we had a great idea. They just didn't think we could do it. Um, luckily, as we've gone on, we haven't had, you know, much. I wouldn't say we've had um, many doors kind of closed in our face because we were women. I think it's actually helped fact that we're women, you know, once we've kind of now that we're here and established um it was just yeah, it was just getting started that we did struggle with but luckily you know we were together mm. the two of us so you know we would always kind of help each other um if i was having a bad day or feeling negative the other one would be you know <laughs> helping so yes and if you are if you have an idea if you're setting out to to start up your own business what do you what are the fundamental lessons that that you can impart on that if you've got an idea you think there's something in it you need to raise money. You've got to climb a lot of hills and you know, convince not just family but investors and banks and so on. Mm -hmm. Are there some fundamental rules that you can help us with that can be a, a guiding hand to budding entrepreneurs out there? Yeah, so, well, I would definitely say the, the most important takeaway from what we've learned is just don't take no for an answer. If you believe in it, you just have to keep going and you will find a way if if you really believe that it is a good idea and if it really is a good idea you will find a way and people will say that people will turn you down uh but you've just got to make it happen you know, go right go left go under go over um you know what we had to do for instance we had to take everything out of our budget and start on a much much smaller amount than we had hoped initially but you know we pre we 
proved the concept and then we were able to get further funding. So there is always a way. You've just got to be, you know, smart, creative and don't give up. Very good, wise words there. And then finally, at the beginning and the end and at the end of every biting talk, I do suggest some things you can do with your two chicks, Ed White. Give me one idea. What was the last thing you did with a carton of two chicks, Allah? Uh, my favourite thing is always to add egg white into my porridge oats and especially for my kids because sometimes it's hard to get them to eat protein i just always mix in a bit of egg white into the porridge and they can't even taste that it's there and it makes the oats delicious mm. so yeah well consider that done in the sitwell household tomorrow morning Excellent. for Walter and his porridge perfect that's great well <laughs> listen two chicks is available everywhere more or less let's face it and if it's not it will be soon because these two women We'll persevere until they get there. Um, Ale, it's wonderful having you on Biting Talk. Safe journey back from Massachusetts, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much, William. Thanks for having me on. Time now on Biting Talk to alight on the uh, magic cocktail carpet of delicious drinks where Farhad Heydari of the House of Heydari is poised with a drink that resembles absolutely nothing to do with his background, uh, he has no discipline. An army and navy. Does this come naturally to Farhad Haydari? Farhad, tell me. Well, it doesn't to me, but I know you're a man of tradition, uh, William. A man of members, clubs, and uh, quite possibly regimental ties. <laughs> no, re no regimental ties, I can assure you. Perhaps signet rings or smoking jackets? Maybe monogrammed loafers? No signet rings, but obviously the latter two, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is a drink that would have been served to those senior officers uh, serving in the, uh, in the armed forces. And it first appeared in print. Uh, William, in 1948, in a book called The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks by David Embury. And it, it, he was known as the Escoffier of cocktail books, uh, just as an FYI. Here's how we do it. Are we ready? Yes, we're ready. We're going to take 50 milliliters of gin. We're going to go with a spectacular gin called the Three Seasons Gin from the Cambridge Distillery. 25 milliliters of freshly squeezed lemon juice. And then 20, mil 20 milliliters of Orgette, or Orgette, as you prefer. All of that goes into our trusty shaker for a long shake filled with ice. We strain that into a chilled coupe and a gentle squeeze of a lemon coil over the top and boom! That's your army and navy and now you could stand at ease, Sergeant Sitwell. <laughs> is there an accent on the E on coupe? Uh, is it coupe? I thought it was... You usually say coupe. I'm sorry to trip you up on this one not at all uh, uh yeah we want to uh, have fact checking absolutely uh some people say it's coupette some people say it's coupe um uh you can use them interchangeably or our dear listeners may want to uh, opine and uh and inform us accordingly yeah. okay tomato tomato you, you strike me as a tomato guy i'm definitely a tomato guy funny enough this uh the orgette is pronounced orgeat in france but uh but we say orgette as it were Okay, enough already. Well, I salute you for that. Thank you very much. Uh, the recipe for an army and navy will be on Farhad Heydari at Mr. Farhad Heydari's Instagram account, will it not? It absolutely will be, and <laughs> we will see you next week, William. <laughs> it will be now. Okay, thank you, Farhad. <laughs> All the best. Thank you, Farhad. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. I'll be back soon with more Biting Talk with two chicks, effortless free-range eggs in a carton. Just think of those dreamy cakes and desserts and drinks. My thanks to producers Front Ear. I'm William Sitwell. Goodbye. Goodbye.